This week, I'm joined by Aspen Brinton, who is a political theorist. Her research interests include democratic theory, dissident movements, East Central Europe, and the intellectual history of civil society and free speech. In this episode, we discuss her book, Confronting Totalitarian Minds, Jan Potocka on Politics and Dissidents, alongside discussions on Gandhi, Phenomenology, Charter 77, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast or just keep everything running, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So Aspen Brinton, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, Confronting Totalitarian Minds, Ian Potochka on Politics and Dissidents, uh, which was published in 2021 by uh, Carolinum Press, who I should make it clear were kind enough to send me uh, a paperback copy of this book. So um, a big thank you to them. Uh, this is a book, as people will imagine from the title, uh, detailing the work of Jan Potocka in relation to politics and dissidents, his life as a political dissident uh, in relation to Charter 77, especially. Um, but also, you for the first three chapters, you have a dialogue between Potocka's philosophy of politics, if you want to put that put it that way, between uh, Havel, Bonhoeffer, and Gandhi, uh, and. Alongside this, you draw in many of the key ideas of Patochka. But before we jump in uh, with the book, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, yeah, how this how this all came about. Um, great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm happy to be here and talk about the book. Um, this book um, came from my work in political theory, a kind of cousin of philosophy. And the questions that I was looking at having to do with dissidents in East Central Europe um, reading a lot of the work of Václav Havel, um, and it was Havel's work that took me to Patochka. Um, uh, and from asking the question of where um, Havel got some of his ideas, and then also the direct relationship between them, but then also wanting to look at a philosophical example of how ideas about politics and dissidents have very deep origins um, in both the methodology of the way we think about the world and then also how we become politically aware enough to step out into certain stages and arenas and take action um, and that ideas really matter for that and philosophical ideas really matter for that. And so the case of Patochka was a great example of how it is that then a philosopher stepped into the political arena and then what about his ideas were related to that moment. And so that's a kind of key question in all of my work, reading about many different dissidents in many different parts of the world, many different philosophers and how those ideas come together. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you began from dissidents, really? That's been your key focus? Yeah, definitely. Um, dissidents, um, civil society organizations, how people organize against unjust authoritarian regimes. Um, so as a political theorist coming at those questions, um, you can look at it in sort of basic empirical ways. You can go out and study people who do this. But to me, the ideas in the philosophical background was much more interesting on the theoretical side. And so I started reading dissidents widely um, and came to Patochka and realized there was not a lot of scholarship out there on his political views. Um, there was um, a, a kind of gap and a need to... Um, take political theory to places that were less Western, less um, traditional, less um, 
sort of focused on, you know, the um, from sort of Hobbes Locke to Plato and Aristotle and not much else. Um, and so that this has also been part of a, a kind of initiative and in comparative political theory to move beyond the traditional canon. Um, but Doshu is, of course, European, um, but at the margins of that and not very well known in the Anglophone world at all um, in the US um, and to some degree in the UK, um, not um, not all that prominent. So to give a voice to these ideas was important to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. So are you, if you don't mind me asking politically yourself, are you sort of sympathetic to any dissident causes? Is, as Was there like a personal reason for this affiliation with dissidents? Um, not not on the on the very practical level. Um, I think I've observed a lot of dissidents I agree with and a lot of dissidents I don't agree with. Um, <laughs> it's not um, uh, it's it's a it's a phenomenon that I as a scholar try to take fairly neutrally um, because it is um, a it's it's there in the toolbox of our citizen politics in both democracies and and in this case sort of authoritarian states that Petrochka lived in. But it's also then subject to um, both sort of errancies and false ideas at the same time. It can be motivated, I think, in Havel and Batochka's case on the sort of push for truth, like finding the truth about the situation, finding what it is to sort of live the good life in a platonic sense through the philosophical tradition, but then how to exercise that in everyday life. Um, I would say not all dissidents has this particular characteristic. Um, and so especially the, the push towards truth and tr- trying to find truth with a kind of philosophical rigor behind it. Um, and that that to me was compelling to dig into it more deeply. Um, so um, I am more scholarly than I am a protester per se. I have not gone down marching many streets with placards or things like that. Okay. Um, but I but I watch it with great interest because the ideas that are at stake are, are, are really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, well, before we dive into more and more dissidents and the work of Patochka, I of course have to ask you the hermetics question. You can place three thinkers living or dead into a room uh, and listen in on the conversation. And Jan Patochka is already sat in the room waiting for these three to enter. Uh, who do you who do you pick? I think that this question is is almost too easy in my <laughs> own case, um, in large part because I think I asked the question before I wrote this book. So I mean, a decade ago, as I got into this, I thought, well, but Tochka is an obscure character in the Anglophone world. So who can I put him into conversation with that people will know that might make someone read this book and take an interest? I'm in a um, obscure Eastern European philosopher, and so. Um, I asked myself that question in the first three chapters of the book, as you mentioned in the introduction, are structured precisely like that. Um, So I chose um, Václav Havel, who um, was a playwright and a dissident and a colleague of Patochka's. They worked together on Charter 77 um, and looked at their kind of textual conversations, looking for those influences and ideas that they would have actually talked about with each other and actually had conversations about, but then trying to show the significance of that conversation for wider sets of ideas about dissidents. And then um, in the second chapter, I chose Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who is a um, dissident from the Nazi area, the Nazi era in Germany. Um, so he's um, protesting against um, Hitler, protesting against National Socialism, participating in the a plot to assassinate Hitler um, as a Christian theologian and minister. Um, so 
living through sets of contradictions on the thou shalt not kill um, sort of imperatives of Christianity, but nonetheless, he took Hitler to be um, sufficient evil to participate in politics in the way he did. He was arrested and executed by the Nazis, but in the meantime, um, wrote prolifically um, both about Christian theology and then in his letters from prison about his politics. Um, so then also in the room is Dietrich Bonhoeffer talking about um, his own experience then as a dissident. But again, like Batochka, he's a scholar. He's philosophically informed. He's read very widely um, in, in, in the Western tradition and is pulling his ideas and his actions out of that philosophy. Um, so he was a great conversation partner to talk through some of Patochka's main concepts. Um, and then in the third chapter, um, I do what I think is controversial in the book for traditional Patochka scholars, and that I bring Mahatma Gandhi into the room um, in, in order to, in some way, offset the Eurocentricism of who Jan Patochka is, working from the German phenomenological tradition, um, really being in conversation with the ancient Greek classics and Patochka himself not having much of a, a view outside of the European problem. But if you take the philosopher's claim that somehow philosophers are working on universal ideas about the human being and universal ideas about what human existence is, those ideas should be able to travel. They should be able to go across borders. They should be able to work into other conversations around the world. If we are really all human, um, the philosopher's claim should hold. Um, and so on that front, um, to put him into conversation with some of Gandhi's philosophical ideas was done in the name of trying to show that his ideas can travel um, and that that then kind of backs up some of the um, claims of university out, universality within them. But it also shows that the, um, I think I had in the back of my mind implicitly, all of the conversations that are now emerging out around the world about colonization and decolonization being processes that are not over. Um, the um, decolonize this, decolonize that um, has um, at least um, around Europe and the US proliferated, right? Art museums are decolonizing, um, decolonizing the classroom is part of the pedagogy discussions so and decolonize everything. And to some degree then what Patochka and Gandhi have in common is that they lived in places um, in Gandhi's terms, much more traditionally colonized by the British empire but in Potochka's life, Czechoslovakia was at different times colonized by many different regimes. Um, colonization grew out of a European tradition, really, and then was exported from Europe. Um, so Czechoslovakia had been colonized most recently by the Nazi takeover um, during World War II, and then also by the communists um, and the Warsaw Pact um, invasion of 1968. Um, and so the, these um, universal ideas of being... Um, colonized by oppressive authoritarian regimes are there in both thinkers, right? Um, so it's not the most distant kind of stretched. Um, and I also wanted to legitimate Patochka's ideas about dissidents because much of the scholarship about how to dissent the practical tactics of, if you want to launch a protest movement, how do you do it? That still all goes back to Gandhi's tactics. Um, what, um, what Satyagraha is, what, um, what the kind of um, active resistance can look like in a peaceful way is still at the basis of almost all protest movements you see today. Um, so, so that conversation was important to me. 
Um, I think it would be fun then if there were an extra chapter that I didn't write <laughs> to sort of say what um, what Gandhi and Bonhoeffer would talk about in the room um, and or what Havel and Bonhoeffer would talk about. Um, because I think there's a wonderful question about whether passive resistance in Gandhi's mode would have worked in Nazi Germany. And I think Gandhi at one point said it wouldn't have worked. Mm. Um, and it would have been fascinating to watch Bonhoeffer and Gandhi um, go into that. But that's mm. a side note. I mean, yeah, the, the, the connections between these thinkers are clear. And I mean, of course, the conversation might be about around, as you say, passive or active resistance. But do you think also there might be a conversation about, you know, what, what it is to actually be uh, a thinker, a philosopher, when you're under actual genuine pressure? You know, what, what, how, that, yeah. how that alters your philosophy? It seems that all four of them, I mean, I guess, well, I'm hoping that the room would be outside of their usual bounds, but if it was in their usual sort of context, then the room might feel extremely pressurized and tense. I think they would all be sitting in prison. I mean, they mm. all had prison terms, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and so there's, um, doing, doing this kind of research, I've read a huge number of prison memoirs. Um, uh, Patochka himself was the only one who didn't actually go to prison. Um, and so um, at some point, the rest all did sit in a cell. Um, and so that, I, uh, yeah, I think it would take place in a prison. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you imagine it. Yeah. Okay. I think I would imagine it so. I mean, well, maybe that sort of alleviates the pressure then because they're already at the, they're already captured. So from then you, do you, do you for, I right. guess, what I would guess I would ask in reading those prison memoirs, is there, is there something then that happens to their thought once, you know, once you have sort of been captured in that way, is that almost an increase in freedom? Because, well, um, other than death, I guess, what have you got to lose? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there, there's a fascinating set of prison memoirs about the genocidaires in Rwanda who have been in prison for life. Um, and so um, someone went in and interviewed them um, about why they committed genocide and they're free to talk. They're not getting out. Um, and so they talked very frankly about why they participated in that. Um, I think in the case of these thinkers, there is a kind of freedom in, uh, I guess, what you would think of as a, if you took it backwards to a 1930s prison where there was no technology, where there was no recording, where there was no surveillance, where there was no kind of um, faculty and panopticon watching what they're saying um, because that force is on all of them as well. Um, the um, many texts of Bonhoeffer's were, you know, stuck in ceiling rafters and under floorboards and hidden trying to um, protect them from being confiscated. Um, there's a group of scholars that got Patochka's manuscripts out of Prague um, across the Iron Curtain um, and many of them were in some typescripts, um, not actually published. And so this kind of constant pressure on the thinkers themselves and then what that pressure does to their need to write in a way um, that's both honest and forthright, but sort of getting down to the real core issues about life and death and why we're here and why we're doing this um, is kind of the rawness of the texts um, in the case of some of Bonhoeffer's letters um, and Potocki's manuscripts that never saw the light of day during his life. Um, so those have a kind of rawness to them. Sometimes a disorganized chaos as well, but like the rawness is, is part of the, um, the charm of many of those texts. So mm -hmm. I get, I get that sense with to sort of segue, I guess, into his life. I get that sense with Potocki that he was quite a, a raw figure from people from from what I've read about his biography, sort of in these underground places, chain smoking and def coming to the defense of bands that he would 
personally hate, as Martin Kochi said. And it seems to come back to that idea ultimately, which sounds quite banal, but of a capital T truth, which completely imbues Patochka's life. And ultimately, if he's one of these figures who in realizing or in heading towards the truth, if it is the truth, then that has to be done with almost, you know, with absolutely zero reservations. And do you think this is really what frames his, um, you know, how he politically understood himself as someone who just, if this is the truth, then why, why would we do anything other than march towards it, you know, unabashedly? Yeah. I I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, part of that's true. I think it's difficult to read any sort of life in the context of Central Europe in the 20th century in a overly teleological way. I mean, if you think of Patochka's life as, you know, first World War I, um, World War II, the Nazi takeover, then the communists came, and then there was some opening up in the late 60s, and then the Russian tanks came in again, and then, um, you know, sort of back and forth um, with a lot of major uncertainty within the political and historical context of opening up around him, um, you know, how you pursued the good life, how you pursued truth, how you kind of figured out how to do the right thing was a constant moving target. <laughs> um, really, really difficult to, um, to sort out from really one month or year to the next um, in some cases. And so um, to read it as if Patochka knew anyone would ever look at his work in this way is also a little bit false, right? There, there's a lot of kind of legend building and apocrypha, a lot uh, sort of, a, or um, yeah, kind of apocryphal ideas around his existence that has come since 1989, right? So he didn't live to see the end of communism. He didn't live to see Václav Havel become president. I think he probably would have been shocked, right? Like, <laughs> um, and so, the, you know, to kind of... Um, I don't think in his own thinking he would see his life as going towards some mountaintop of pure truth, right? His notion of kind of like finding the truth was much more process-oriented and movement-oriented. So um, the movement part was really kind of related to that history, to the fact that history is always moving around you. You need to move with history. Um, And you might at one point sort of think you've gotten to a good set of questions and those good set of questions have opened up phenomenologically um, some revelation about the world that's allowed you to reflect upon yourself and reflect upon your situation. Um, But history keeps moving. And so that that reflection, um, as he says, in many points will eventually fall back into myth again. So myth is this kind of counterpoint idea to truth and reason. Um, Eventually you're going to fall back into myth again and you're going to have to do it all over. Right. It's a more it's a more Sisyphean pattern of, you know, you, you're going to you're going to find some truth. You're going to get to a point, but then history is going to move and then you're going to have to do it again. And that has a kind of poetic resonance with the history of Central Europe itself. Right. Um, you know, as we're um, as we're watching a place like Ukraine. Right. I mean, there are towns there that have um a town like Lviv, right? It used to be Lvov and it used to be Lenberg. So three generations of people could live in the same town and have endured three different countries, right? Over the course of the 20th century, like you, your father and your grandfather could have lived in the same place, but lived in three different countries. And so, you know, Central and Eastern Europe has this character to it. And so I think um, Patochka's political understanding came out of that. um, But it also then 
led him to understand that some sort of engagement, like you say, in the underground seminars in this constant pursuit of questioning was um, the right way to live. Um, and that at certain points he was called apolitical, like he wasn't out in the streets, he wasn't getting arrested, um, he wasn't as active until really very late in his life. Um, and so the, the choice to become involved with Charter 77, to work with Havel and to be a spokesman and a public figure um, was a different way of being political than was teaching students in an underground seminar about political distress and how philosophy can help you in political distress. Right. That was an appropriate kind of political understanding for the period of normalization for after the 1968 invasion. Um, and it was something later that was happening. So he's constantly, I think, moving with history and definitely not doing one kind of politics over the course of his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for those that uh, aren't aware of aren't aware of it historically, what exactly was Charter 77? Um, Charter 77 was a um, fairly by our standards today, extremely small social movement. Um, and so um, extremely small in that um, the signatories of this charter, they wrote a document um, and then presented the document publicly. There were fewer than 300 signatories. Okay, um, So it was a small group of largely artists and intellectuals um, in Czechoslovakia that signed this. Um, what did it say? Um, it... Um, claimed itself to be not political in this sort of ironic, tongue-in-cheek, subversive way. Um, it said, no, this is an anti-political statement. This isn't political. We're um, simply coming together to say that um, freedom of speech um, in some way um, and freedom of assembly um, still matter in part because both the Soviet Union and the Czechoslovak communist state had signed um, the Helsinki Declaration, which was in support of um, human rights, of uh, protecting human rights um, within the Soviet bloc. Um, so the official governments had signed this document, but shown absolutely no interest in enforcing it. And so the document was about pointing to some of that hypocrisy, as well as refracting through the very local situation, as you said, of this youth rock band, um, Plastic People of the Universe. Um, basically, kids playing, you know, loud what I think Potochka would call obnoxious music, um, <laughs> and then just um, being arrested for it, right? And then kind of put on trial and just the kind of indignation around, you know, various circles of saying, you know, people should be able to be who they are and express themselves how they want to. Um, and these are just kids playing music. Um, why are you doing this? Um, and so a lot of that group of signatories could get behind that very basic idea, right? That, that, um, that what was happening to these kids wasn't right. And I think Patochka saw that and became involved at that point, um, in large part because he himself was also someone who wasn't allowed to be who he was. He wasn't allowed to teach as a professor at a university, um, and he wasn't allowed to say things in the way he wanted to say them, right? They weren't close enough to the communist official party line um, to be accepted. And so he also wasn't allowed to sort of talk how he wanted to talk and who he was. So I think even though he didn't like the music, I think he probably relate to the kids in that way. So mm. what was the, uh, you know, the attempt to say that it's apolitical in any sense successful or was that, you know, see, did they see through that sort of immediately? Well, by 1977, um, you know, the, the repression tactics were not as violent as they were in the Stalinist era. They weren't as, you know, uh, they, they weren't as um, overt in some way. And so it was a more kind of ideological battle 
of, you know, going back and forth about, um, you know, the, the role of, of communism in the state and the culture. Um, and so the anti-political part, um, and anti-politics is the title of a book by a Hungarian intellectual and the, the word sort of anti-politics was circulating around in various Eastern European countries. Um, it was more of a, um, it's not political in the sense of it's not communist political so that it doesn't follow the Marxist party line. It doesn't follow um, we're not going to debate about the role of the proletariat um, in X, Y, or Z sort of situation. We're not going to actually take up the, um, the official party line terminology. And so it's anti-political in that way. Um, and so um, did it work? Um, I mean, the secret police were still following everyone around. People were still getting arrested. Um, it was still taken as political. Um, I mean, and so um, it worked in that um, by 1977, there were established channels that this became news in Western countries. Um, and so that the, the kind of effect of getting the news out to Western countries back into the population on Radio Free Europe um, and sort of communicated, then it became um, part of the, the larger diplomatic discussions um, that sort of led into the 1980s, that the citizens were not quite as happy as they <laughs> as the regime said they were, um, so that, that this news did get out um, in, in that way. So. Okay. So, would, would, would you say Charter 77 was one of the sort of the primary reasons that Patochka eventually, you know, ended up going through these sort of grueling, as I understand it, the you know, 12-hour interrogation yeah. sessions, which would really lead ultimately to his death? Um, right. Was Charter 77 the primary reason or was he just understood as a figure generally that, you know, needed to be yeah, interrogated um, in this manner? <laughs> He, um, uh, I, I think, um, I mean, there's some sort of release of new records from the secret police on sort of Potochka's case. Um, I haven't had a chance to look at them directly, but he was known to be too dangerous to let teach in the university, right? So the regime knew that much. Um, it was known that he was giving these seminars. Some of those seminars were infiltrated by um, uh, the, the agents. Um, but they kept moving around, so not all of them. <laughs> um, and so it was a kind of cat and mouse game. Um, and so he was he was known to be also then a fairly just sort of well-respected, um, not so much a troublemaker as Havel or not so much of, um, not quite so contentious as the others. So I think as Havel um, asked him to be a spokesman, right, it was because he had a more non-political or apolitical reputation and that he had not protested against the fact he couldn't teach so much. He hadn't been overt about things. Um, so I think without the structure of Charter 77, without the trial of the, the rock band, without the rest, um, he probably would have continued to give underground seminars and kind of do what he was doing before. But that is kind of created an opportunity moment, right, um, to step out and to um, get involved. And then there was a crackdown, right? I mean, he was taken into interrogation. Um, and um, for, for many, many hours, right, he was already in frail health when he um, came to participate in various public events. Um, and he didn't die right away, um, but um, within um, basically within 10 days or so. Um, so his health failed. Um, and this then created around the whole, um, the whole scene um, the story of a martyr, right? Um, and so it 
um, it was it was a loss to the intellectual community. It was a loss. A lot of people's close friend had died. And so it then also became dangerous for the regime in that way and that it galvanized the people around him, right? His um, huge amounts of effort were put into preventing people from going to his funeral and things like that, um, because that was a politically dangerous thing to just gather people together around that. Um, so um, without Charter 77, would he have done that? Would he have died? Um, all kind of <laughs> um, <laughs> counterfactual questions. But I think what has definitely happened is that then the story and the ideas have gotten linked to each other for sure. Um, and because of what Patochka had written about before, you can then go back to his writings and you can see his thinking and you can see how what he did is pretty consistent with his thinking. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, Okay. Well, I, I just wanted to jump back to, uh, you know, the, the joys of phenomenology and something you mentioned about how, you know, in this notion of movement, which we'll also get to in relation to the threefold movement, which you articulate uh, in your book. Um, so you mentioned that once you come to know something for Patuchka, eventually he sort of says, look, it's going to change and you'll have to go back and you'll have to do it all again. Otherwise, these things will become myth. So in relation to the phenomenology and understanding Patochka as, as a phenomenologist, if we can do such a thing. Um, is is this a case of almost Patochka, you know, because he sort of veers, as I understand it, he veers off from phenomenology. He has sort of some criticisms of it. And it is it, I guess, to draw in some dense Husserlian language, is it that he would be saying that, you know, essences are, in some sense, an essence becomes a myth and the essence in its own context changes? Um, <laughs> apologies for that. <laughs> apologies for that very yeah. dense question. Um, you, you'll, I have found in my own reading of this that in order to know, to figure out what Patochka is doing, you have you have to know Husserl um, to to some degree. And so, um, I got I my path to Husserl went through Patochka, and that um, Patochka was one of my first teachers about Husserl, and that his essays on Husserl were some of my own first reading and then um, back into more of Husserl after that. Um, and so I'm never going to claim to be an expert on Husserl. There are, there are scholars who, um, who, who work on this at, at levels of detail um, that are definitely relevant to sorting out what Patochka is doing, um, but they're also then um, relevant to themselves in a lot of ways that then don't necessarily directly link to the politics. So um, I didn't go that far down <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to like also then just not in a sense confuse my readers in the book. Mm-hmm. But I will say you have to you have to think this through with Patochka because like most thinkers, he will change over the course of his life. Um, and so when you read his earliest works and you get up through then to his later works, there, there's an evolution in thought. And so it's not um the answer of what Patochka thinks an essence is or whether an essence is fixed um, would change over the course of his life. I mean, as he was a close student of Husserl's initially, um, he probably sort of shared at least the the impetus in Husserl to be able to reveal the world in a full and a complete way um, to be able to compete with the scientific understanding, right? I mean, this is Husserl's general project, right, is to create a philosophical method that can um, get all the way there to the um, to the revolution of things as they really are. Um, so Patochka shares that, but I think what he runs up against is 
a kind of sense that absolutist thinking, um, I think is the term I end up choosing in my book. Um, so thinking that gets all the way to absolutes, that you absolutely know something or that you absolutely achieve something or that something is fully and completely revealed, he ends up rejecting that by the end of his life um, and coming to the the idea that the, the essence, while you can try to reveal it, um, will always be subject to your own humanness and to your own humanity. So to your own... Um, to your own ideas. Um, and he does that while at the same time saying it is still your moral obligation to try to become self-conscious of your prejudices, self-conscious of your biases, self-consciousness of your myths and your delusions and the way you lie to yourself, right? And don't tell the truth to yourself, right? Um, you need to be aware of all of those things um, and work at them. But you also then need to be humble enough to know that you aren't going to come to a kind of absolute truth. Um, and there's a hub there's a hubris to that. There's a little bit of like, I want to be an all-knowing being in order to know these absolutes. Um, and that I think Patoshka ends up very suspicious of by the end of his life, um, which is then this turn to movement and the turn to history. And also, as I think one scholar has called it at the end of his life, a kind of Kantian turn back to morality. Um, as if to say there is a moral framework that can come from this constant questioning. So it's not the postmodern version where morality goes out the door, which makes it tremendously confusing. Mm. <laughs> um, if that's uh, no, a that, 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 cryptic place to stop, but yeah. <laughs> no, that, that answers the question. I mean, and it's it's always going to be a difficulty because Patuchka then seems to have this this very key and almost... I don't want to say tragic, that's probably a bit dramatic, but this emphasis on movement of the fact that no foundation can, you know, any foundation has to accept that there is this historical movement, there is this contextual change, there's going to be this right. political change, there's going to be also, you know, an internal uh, personal change in relation to biases and emotions, as you've said. And so movement seems to be the underlying foundation, which uh, of course inherently makes everything more difficult because any absolute right. immediately you know, nullifies or, or sort of contradicts anything you're doing. So yeah. politics and morality for Patuchka, I guess, you know, these just, it's a very banal thing to say, but these can't ever really be absolutes. But this is something he gets right. to. Right, right. I think so. I mean, I, th I think it's a it's a development that then also goes, goes through some Heideggerian categories, right? Sort of thinking through um, Heidegger's concept of historicity, I think pulls him away from um, Husserl is absolute at some degree, but then also elements of a kind of existentialist thinking are in there at the same time. Um, so what it is, um, what it is to exist. Um, yeah, it, and it's, I, I think your phrase is right in that the foundation is movement, like, because there is a foundation there, but it is not a stable foundation. Um, so the, you know, our associations with the English word foundation aren't quite right like there's mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's more like you know the, the boat at sea i think mm -hmm. is probably you know like you have something under your feet um you, you definitely is there but it is but it's moving um mm -hmm. so yeah perhaps that notion that it's a the philosophical notion of like the helmsman is probably quite helpful right you have you have the boat yeah. which is your foundation but it still has to abide by the weather the wind the waves whatever the yeah. ocean's doing and you can't push against that so i wonder maybe a question to sort of um, expand this out a little bit. I mean, what would what do you think it would be for Potochka for you know these these political movements who sort of 
or political ideas and thoughts which really you know plant their flag and draw the borders and just say right with you know this is where we are and there's no room for any movement right um i i think there um yeah that's that would definitely be inconsistent with his philosophy in terms of the structure of it right um that the the constant questioning the you know the problematicity is a kind of um not so pretty word um that gets attached to this right that you conceive of life as the problem and that problematicity then becomes an existential stance towards the world um and there is then no um yeah you you don't end up planting your flag you end up in a kind of um, progressive to-do list and like there are things yet to be done. There are things yet to be done. Um, And so the, um, I mean, to use the example of Gandhi, I think when I do sort of take that up in the the three movements of existence chapter, I use Gandhi's life as an example. Um, And so there what you have is, you know, a figure who um, in you know, if the first movement of existence is kind of your naivete of childhood and all of the things you don't choose about your life, right? You're you're born here, you plop down there, this is your culture, this is your language, this is um, what was given to you, and then you kind of accept it. And then if the second movement of life is then sort of taking up some project in life and working and being involved in society and work and culture, right? In Gandhi's case, this was going off to England, to university, getting his law degree, Um, going down to the high street, buying a suit in the Western style, right? Putting on a suit and tie and, you know, a a wool cap appropriate to the the lawyerly trade and, right, heading off to South Africa to his first, you know, major job as a lawyer. Um, And so you you get this, this is kind of Gandhi's second movement, right? This is him going out to participate as a colonial subject in the British Empire. And then um, you have the moment that's depicted in various different sort of stories of Gandhi. There were several moments, right? He gets thrown out of the train from his first class ticket on his way. He then gets sort of attacked and beaten up in the alley at a certain point once he arrives in South Africa, all related to the color of his skin and the fact that he's not white. Um, And he nonetheless sort of conceives of himself as, but wait, I'm a university educated lawyer. Like, why is this happening? And that tension sort of propels Gandhi into what I think Patochka would call a sort of third movement of existence, a kind of self-awareness, a questioning of what is this system? What is this culture? What is this thing I'm participating in? Um, How am I able to question that and to push back against it? But back to the question of planting the flag, right? Gandhi becomes involved in all of the projects he does in South Africa. He goes back to India. He starts the home rule movement, everything from the salt march to the rest. Um, but once he he wins, and this is the point I make in the book, like once he um, kind of successfully dismantles the British Empire, right? I mean, this is kind of amazing, right? Like he does, there is a moment where he sort of does plant his flag and say, I've won. Um, and there is like the persistent problem of Pakistan, right? There's a whole set of um, peoples in his country who thinks he hasn't quite won, right? Like that there's still problems, there's still issues, the problem of the Muslim minority and the Hindu majority. Um, And Gandhi doesn't necessarily pay as much attention to it as many people think he should. Um, And so Gandhi did, in a sense, plant his flag before the problems were fixed, Um, you know, before it really was um, 
before home rule um, had a meaning to everyone. Um, and so then you end up with the ugliness of partition and the rest. Um, and so I think that would be an example of like where, okay, if Gandhi had taken a more Patochka-like um, approach to things, he would have recognized the problem was not solved when the British left, <laughs> mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The British leaving um, and quote unquote success um, was just the first step, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and that there's then in a sense, more steps and more, more places to go um, because of his own biography and life story and um, what happened to Gandhi himself. We don't know if Gandhi would have come back around to that later on um, after that um, uh so, but but that would be the kind of Patoshka analysis of Gandhi that he did stop too soon. Mm. And is that is that sort of some of the reason you consider it? Well, it was considered to be somewhat controversial to uh, include Gandhi in your book on Patoshka. Um, not necessarily. I mean, that was one of the reasons to include the story, right? Because there has been a lot of interesting scholarship on Gandhi in the last decade um, that's very critical of what he did um, and some of critical of his um, own hypocrisies, right? Um, And critical of some of his own um, sort of advertising things that um, weren't necessarily realized. Um, And so um, that secondary scholarship is, is fascinating in a way. And it shows, again, some of the the universal aspects of what's going on there, right? The fact that um, Gandhi is of South Asian descent or is of a different race and of a different culture doesn't so much necessarily matter for that question, right? I mean, this is a human sort of problem of being involved in politics, what power does to you, how kind of movement, social movements work, um, and that it is then that aspect of it, right? Of the needing to keep going, of not planting the flag, right? is a kind of universal trait. And mm-hmm. so that I think is the less controversial part of including Gandhi. I think um, the more, I think the hesitancy when you start to do these kinds of conversations across cultural borders in a frame where philosophers are working, um, the hesitancy is not sort of knowing, not having enough general knowledge of Gandhi's philosophical points to be able to validate whether this conversation is meaningful, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, if the the reader of this book comes along and has never read anything Gandhi has written besides that, you know, um, besides the sort of stereotypical quotes that end up on posters about Gandhi, um, they won't necessarily, um, they won't necessarily know if it's right. Um, and so it's the, the task of these conversations and engaging things that your readers don't necessarily know the readers then don't know whether to trust you. Mm-hmm. Whether if, whereas when you write a book about Patochka's relationship to Husserl and it's being read by Husserl and Patochka scholars, they can have a real deep discussion about like, you know, the transcendental reduction and all of the terms and the rest. And they're all, they're all in the same discourse community. Um, and so they can, they can validate that conversation. Whereas bringing in this strange outside piece, um, I think it's, it's harder for people to read about, mm-hmm. at least at least professional philosophers. But um, <laughs> it seems like a very Patuchkin thing to do, though. Maybe I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think um, so. To force people out of their comfort zones a little bit, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean to to bring in the rock band, I guess. 
Right, yes. Um, um, so there's a not necessarily a contradiction with all these ideas of movement but there's a, a an idea which is extremely i mean it's always been i guess fairly popular but the idea of political impotence with this um movement so really the two with this human movement and the first three we have these three stages the first two seem to be almost an acceptance of limitation or an acceptance of you know where you were born what what you've been what's within you in certain sense, your personality, and then you're moving through, to give the example of Gandhi, to become this, you know, to become the lawyer, to become sort of embedded within the culture and context you're given. And then this sort of almost, I don't know, strange break from that. The first two stages of the movement are this acceptance of limitation. So it seems, is is just to draw in another term that you bring in for Patuchka, to live in truth, do you think it's it's almost like, an acceptance of limitation and then a, an understanding of a potential for political, you know, impotence of perhaps there might be an inability to do anything. But then this third movement is, well, but there's still the truth. So amidst all of this, to live in truth is sort of already thwart with a disappointment. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's correct. I mean, it's definitely not a happy triumphalist to answer at the end of this, right? So to live in truth, right, what that ends up meaning. Um, and that's the the title of my first chapter, where I also talk a lot about Havel. Um, it's, I think for, for Patochka, it matters because, yeah, the first and second movements, you have to accept limitation. And I would say in the third movement, you also have to accept limitations, right? You're not divine. You're not God. You're not going to fix everything. You're not going to know everything. Um, and that that's a, a very characteristic, uh, you know, sort of point, right? The humility that, that should come with the constant self-questioning and the constant problematicity um, is a recognition that we all, in some ways, lie to ourselves and don't tell the truth to ourselves about um, whether it's the culture we live in, the politics we're involved with, or um, our own relationships on the more micro level to other people and to other groups, right? Um, in order to like, in order to live in truth about that, you you have to constantly question all of those things, um, and so you have to be in a state of reflection. Um, reflection is an important word for Patochka, and that you know he says like once you've reflected upon a situation, you've fundamentally changed it, um, and so. A reflected upon situation is a new situation. It's not the same situation it was before you reflected upon it. Um, and so that the um, that process of bringing reflection into your life um, is a process of beginning to bring the truth into your life, um, knowing that you're not going to get to absolute truth, um, but that you're going to live within this process of constantly trying to find the truth. Um, and so that that... Um, then I think maps on to the third movement as, you know, you're just still moving, right? You just still haven't gotten there. Um, and it's also the case that I think, I mean, he didn't write this explicitly anywhere, but if you were to ask Patochka, like, do most people just end up staying in the second movement and never really thinking about it? He would say, yeah, probably that's the, that's the default state, right? You get involved in what you're involved in, your society, your culture, your rest, and you just go with it because that's what everyone else is going with. And it's the easiest thing. It's the path of least resistance. Um, and so um, it does then take um, some sort of moment to break in and kind of show you that you haven't been all that honest with yourself um, and that you need to ask some more questions. And so that's the kind of existential moment where 
dissidence comes into being something that is not it's not carrying a placard on the street. It's not, you know, even necessarily protesting against your government. Dissidence is a sort of form of self-awareness where you're willing um, to see the untruth in yourself and the world around you and then be able to acknowledge it and recognize it um, and to sort of see your, to see your existence in a new light and to, and to then eventually push back against some of those social forces around you um, that are causing you to think in very conformist or very stereotypical ways um, that aren't all that truthful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you mentioned Heidegger and you, you also have this notion of being shaken. So it seems that in, for Petrushka, this idea of being shaken is really this peculiar thing which happens between the second and third movement, something which yeah. you either accept and sort of accept that, okay, well, now things are going to be different and difficult, or perhaps you just fall back and say, oh, okay, I'll ignore that and just carry on with my lovely, comfortable life. And it seems almost okay. like a political a political reappropriation maybe of Heidegger's idea of being thrown into the world, right? So we're thrown yeah. into existence for Heidegger, but for Petuchka, this would be, well, you're just getting thrown into this political context and it's up to you whether or not you sort of accept your political mortality, okay. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, to sort of overlay that Heideggerian idea of thrownness onto the Eastern European, you know, context of the 20th century, I think anyone who lived through that set of historical events was constantly being rethrown, right? Like first you're thrown into this and then you're thrown into that and then you're thrown into this and then, um, you know, oh, here's another war and here's another um, crazy political situation and now your border has moved and so on. So it was, you're just, you're rethrown. Um, and so that, um, I think probably, I mean, I don't know whether Potoshka is laughing a little bit at Heidegger in some of this, but um, but saying, you know, it's, it's not a one-time deal. Um, and that you you have to then realize that the shaking can come from internal sources, right? It can come from a kind of deep introspection where you realize you're not telling the truth to yourself, but it can also come from external circumstances, um, which is why when I talk about solidarity of the shaken in the book, which is a term that Patoshka uses at the end of his long work, Heretical Essays, and in several other places, um, I talk about it in light of um, the atomic bomb um, and in light of this moment in 20th century history that was more global than what was happening in Eastern Europe, where everyone had to reconcile with this brand new, um, uh, very heavy reality that we had appropriated and created the means to destroy our species, right? Um, and this being something fundamentally new and something fundamentally different a kind of shaking from the outside. Um, and then what ends up happening is that people react to it differently. Um, and that this is another element of what solidarity of the shaking comes to mean, right? Um, in, in some reactions to the shakenness of the new atomic situation, um, the um, one reaction was just to build more weapons and more weapons and more weapons, right? Um, uh, other reactions were to protest against the weapons um, and that these choices then come at a moment where you where you choose whether you are in solidarity with others in this moment, um, and so it's not it's this shift from the individual shakenness of self awareness um, to then being able to do that um, in a way where you recognize your membership in a community, your membership 
in the kind of human species idea um, and to sort of see yourself on the same ship with one another, I think mm. is the epigraph I use. Um, everyone's on a ship that will be shipwrecked is one of his most cheerful phrases. Um, <laughs> so, um, but that, that notion of being on a ship together um, is, is important, right? I mean, that, that then becomes um, part of how you understand the basis of, of what you're then going to do in cooperation with other people, which is a political question. I mean, that's, but that's, uh, I mean, one, there's two things there. I mean, one thing I want to just draw in possibly because in recent months I've just become less fond of Heidegger, but I mean, the, between these two, <laughs> between these two <laughs> figures of, of Heidegger and Patuchka, you certainly see the, uh, the, the clear biograph, biographical yes. representation of someone, Heidegger, someone who completely stopped at that second movement and fell back into the comfort of Nazi Germany and said, Husserl, you can't even use the library. I mean, that's how sort of bitter and conformist yeah. he was. And then Potochka, you know, you know, seeing what he saw within his own context and taking, taking the leap. But I mean, I would say there's something hopeful in that shipwreck analogy because from what I understand in the Renaissance, uh, people like Dante use the analogy of the shipwreck to describe the countries around them and describe their own country, but they understood it in like a hopeful sense of it begins from a shipwreck because now we get to like rebuild. So there's, um, there's a, there's, I mean, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't agree with this, but it seems like throughout the whole movement of Patuchka's politics, there is clearly some, some hope. Um, but where do you think, if if you agree with me, where do you think he's he's finding that? Because it's so it's moving all the time, and once you remove this teleology, hope becomes a peculiar thing because you don't have the utopia, you don't have the clear aim. So where do you think hope's hidden here? Where is hope hidden in this? Um, <laughs> if there is, it hope. is no. I think that I think I think there is hope. I mean, I I don't think we see kind of. Patochka walking out of his house to, you know, be the spokesman for Charter 77 without hope somewhere, right? Like, um, this is, um, th there's hope um, in, a, in a, I think it is like sort of embedded within that concept of solidarity of the shaken. Um, he's talking in one point where he uses this term about the trenches and about World War I um, and about some of the soldiers' experiences with war. Um, and there, what he's really kind of referencing is the relationship between the soldiers themselves in the great confusion of a war. Um, there is a solidarity that forms within the conflict, within the crisis, within the calamity um, that then brings small groups of people together on a common understanding, right? So that solidarity is based on those who understood the situation. We saw the truth together. Um, we came to an understanding together um, and that those small groups of people then in in that space, um, there is a kind of humanity that's um, reconstituted and and even sort of cultivated towards the future. Um, and I think you can see this then in um, sort of sociologically in different kind of spaces. Um, in his own time, the artist space, those 300 people who signed the document kind of constituted and created one of those spaces um, where people understood each other, they understood the situation, they were all kind of committed to a truth, um, and then they kind of helped each other survive in those underground seminars, right? Um, they helped each other reflect together, they helped each other then create those kind of small islands of back to water metaphors, but sort of, sort of small islands of civility and islands of um, 
companionship and, and humanity within that larger sea that's um, perhaps destroying things. And so I think that's the hope that then comes out of Patochka and also his philosophy itself, right? I mean, this is a vision for him that's also then linked to Plato and it's linked to Socrates and it's linked to the idea of the cave as well, which is why I started the book with this in that, you know, the, the task of philosophy is itself not just to have, you know, one person come to the truth, but it's the fact there's a group of people, they're all changed in the cave, right? Like that the point is to get out together um, and that um, the, the philosophical enterprise, the conversation, the working through ideas, all of that is then actually to, um, is to, to, to create bonds and links between people to address a very distressing situation. Um, so that's how he frames it in Plato in Europe and his underground lectures of, you know, why do we go back to the ancients? Why do we talk about Plato and Aristotle? We do it because there's models there to think about our own distress. Um, so, um, yeah, that might, I haven't quite decided how elitist that is, but um, <laughs> it might be. <laughs> I, don't um, think, I don't think it's too elitist because of his, because you know, Plato. The 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 thing that people I think often forget about the cave is that Plato did did say, well, when you go back there, they will all try to kill you. So there is always that element. There is always that element of, okay, I got out. Either I'm going to be elitist and you know, sort of stay out here and be like, I know the truth, or am I going to pluck up the courage and potentially go get killed? Which is most definitely the situation within Soviet, you know, with Potochka. Yeah. Um, no, that, that definitely mapped on. And there's there's a wonderful documentary that was made about him called The Socrates of Prague. Um, and so um, so that um, that frame has definitely um, sort of come to be involved in conversations about Patochka. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, is there anything uh, specific about your book that you'd like to add in that you feel we haven't touched upon? Of course, there is far more within your book than what we've talked about today but uh yeah is there anything key that you think you'd like to add in um i don't i mean i think that's covered a lot of parts of it um the uh um we haven't talked that much about the last chapter i, I used the last chapter to talk about environmental activism um and patochka's view on the natural world um that i think was um a fun and interesting and a little bit chaotic chapter to write um, because it's such a moving target um, <laughs> that this is something that's going on now. But um, Patochka's dissertation, so his very first kind of long framework was called The Natural World as a Philosophical Problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so the natural world for him was um, looking at Husserl's categories of the natural world. So it wasn't quite like we mean it today. But what you what you end up seeing in his thinking, which I think is useful for thinking about the climate crisis and environmental change, um, is a really sustained critique of what he calls technological civilization and um, the, the rationality of scientific production and the exploitation of resources to do that, both human resources and resources of the earth. Um, and he's consistently critical of this as being one of those human projects that's pushing towards the absolute. So absolute knowledge, absolute power, absolute control via technology, via industry. Um, and that he kind of saw very early on that this was a little bit of a runaway train, um, mm -hmm. that he could see 
the hubris behind the science um, in the atomic bomb, but then he could see that the logic of the atomic bomb was somehow almost everywhere then into industry, into production, um, into many of those aspects of life that have now genuinely wrecked havoc upon the earth. Um, and so he went back um, towards the end of his life um, and updated his dissertation, right? He wrote um, some sort of extra essays and extra notes upon it um, in, I think he was in a hurry. They're not the most coherent few paragraphs um, I've ever read in my life, um, but they're, they're greatly poetic um, in, in a certain way um, in that he could see then that um, uh, and he has a, a lovely sentence somewhere in there was that I wish I could have seen like when I was, you know, first working on this problem of the natural world, that it wasn't a problem just the philosophical categories, but that it was much more a problem of living in the world and what it is to live in the natural world. Um, and so he says that this is over the course of my life, part of what I've been able to see about my early ideas that I would want to update and elaborate Um if he had time, right? And so this was only a few years before he died. So he never really had time to, to update and elaborate that beyond this um, kind of um, short set of addendums that he made to that initial work. And those have all been translated into English fairly recently within about the last five years. Um, so, so I think in reading those, I could, um, I end up ending the book with that set of reflections in part because it seemed to speak most to the future, but that it was also the one sort of point of Patochka's work that was left kind of deeply incomplete by his own death. You kind of feel like he would have, um, if he'd lived to 89 or if he'd lived farther, that he would have gone into it more. And then he would have kind of, um, one of his last essays was about Dostoevsky. He often wrote about sort of Russian literature um, in this way, but about sort of finding meaning in the world. So he was, he was basically saying, you know, the natural world is this key idea there's a whole project he kind of had left in his mind about a phenomenology of meaning of how do we find meaning throughout sort of human life. Um, and he was kind of pushing in that direction, right. As he was becoming involved in politics in Charter 77. So those kind of unfinished questions are to me, part of what makes him a very sort of interesting and relevant figure to read um, because those questions are still, I think in our own um, ways of thinking unanswered. So, mm -hmm. so sort of, a Patuchkian analysis of the current climate crisis, it seems that a lot of people are halting at the leap from the second to third movement and not not really um, accepting the the truth of the matter. So do yeah. you would you would you say Patuchka might say say that we need a real uh, horrible philosophical word real, but uh, <laughs> an authentic moment of uh, sort of collective defamiliarization, something that would something would truly shake us up so we could actually see okay i mean to give an yeah. example i guess someone someone posted a picture the other day of them say and it said uh, here i am stood in the middle of china's biggest dry lake or china's biggest lake and yeah. they were stood in the <laughs> middle of it so that for me i've thought well that's a fantastic example of sort of defamiliarization we need to take everyone in the world to this dry lake and say to this like, dry lake yes here, um, here's the real moment of being shaken up no, definitely. Um, and having just taken my summer holidays in the Swiss Alps and with a friend deciding we needed to go have lunch next to a glacier and watch the glacier melt um, was what we did one day. Um, and so um, we kind of got ourselves there in a great sort of sense of pride about all the hiking we had done and then sat and watched the glacier melt. And then um, 
that would that was it was like the lake bed right i mean mm. you, you sort of get there and it was you know so hot in a way um and could you multiply that experience outward to everyone is of course the question that climate activists are asking so the the examples that i chose to sort of talk through in the book um one of which is an organization called Extinction Rebellion, um, which has surprisingly f- philosophical mission statements. I mean, they, they've got um, really a kind of sense of ideas there. Um, that is, um, they are kind of philosophically aware in that third movement kind of sense, right? That they kind of understand, and they also understand their political action on behalf of the environment, as well as their personal sacrifices on behalf of the environment, right? So this is, um, uh, you know, huge numbers of environmental activists have died, right, um, in doing what they're doing. Um, and so I point that out, right, this is often a very risky, life-threatening activity in certain countries and in certain places, environmental activists are just targeted. Um, and so in kind of thinking through that, right, these are examples of whether they be, you know, the philosopher into the cave or the sort of you know, transition to the third movement, there are people who are risking a lot and sacrificing a lot in order to tell the truth um, and to galvanize other people around that truth to to create a solidarity of the shaken, right? The ultimate goal of that is to get everyone on earth, you know, um, uh, aware of the truth of it in order to kind of change something about their actions. And that is beyond all of our lifetimes, that kind of idea. And so what's going on with those activists that I find very Patochka-esque is that they're doing those sacrifices for the sake of people they will never meet. Um, They are doing it for the sake of um, people in countries they will never, you know, inhabit because it will be 50 or 100 years in the future and we won't be here. Um, So that maps on quite nicely to this very strange idea in Patochka of that the highest form of sacrifice is the sacrifice for nothing. Um, and this is, this is a strange idea, but it's not, it's not sort of nothing in a fully nihilistic sense, but it's a sacrifice for not things, for things that are not things, um, for um, abstracts, for ideas, for principles that you don't ever directly benefit from. Um, and so, um, so this, this kind of form of sacrifice of environmental activists, they're not going to ever truly benefit from their work. Um, and that, I think, is is an interesting parallel to some of what Patochka says about certain political sacrifices that are never going to bear any fruit. They're never going to be successful, but you do them anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And so that this is one of the, the paradoxes of what was going on in Eastern Europe before 1989, is that most of those dissidents didn't think they were going to be successful. Pavel never thought he would be president, right? Um, He just pretty much assumed he'd be thrown in prison again. Um, And so they did it anyway. They did it even though they knew they were going to fail. And so that idea is is fascinating to me. So why do you do something when you know it's going to fail? It's linked to this kind of sense of sacrifice for an idea and sense of sacrifice for a principle and a sense of sacrifice for people you will never meet. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that that... um, is a very high bar and a high standard, but it's um, something we should all definitely kind of think about, right? It's a um, salutary exercise to think through that process. Mm-hmm. It's so strange that all these all these um, small aspects of Patuchka's reasoning to do things, uh, hope, sacrifice, you know, a hope for something that isn't there. That's all. It's almost like he's spiritually Christian in a secular world. 
he's doing the Christian things, but for secular reasons, which is very peculiar. Maybe, yeah, yeah, I think, um, right. And I mean, the, this, you know, I mean, I mean, Martin's book is good on this. Martin Kochi's book um, helps us understand that aspect of Patochka. Um, but I also think there's a lot of aspects of many dissident movements um, and, and more so in the 20th century, as I've read more widely, that take religious frameworks, um, take the, 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 the equivalent of the church out of them and then repurpose them to motivate people on, um, on the very natural human inclination to both feel something spiritual but also then to have meaning um, and to have that meaning connected to higher goods. Um, and so that is within dissident movements, actually it's hard to describe in sort of shorthand, but you see it, you see it coming up. Um, and so you see then um, the, the religious and the theological frameworks being used um, without the religion to frame politics. Um, if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, does, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. So where would you um, advise people to begin with uh, Patochka's political works? I mean, of, other than your own book, of course. <laughs> sure. um, there's actually a great um, uh, small set. Um, so it's easy to um, digest of essays um, that's been recently re-released by both um, Carolyn and Press together with Oikumene Press, which was the publisher of Patochka's Complete Works in Czech. They got together and republished this translation, which has the title Living in Problematicity, um, which is translated by Eric Manton from Czech into English. Um, so there's, I think, five or six essays in there that um, touch on some of Patochka's early political writing, sort of up through to the Charter 77 texts. And and that, I think, is is a great introduction to Patochka's political ideas from, um, in a sense, from Patochka himself, which I think is always the best way to start. Um, and then there's an older book, um, which has some an introductory biographical essay um, uh, by Erzim Kohak, um, which is a good introduction to Patochka and also has some of his essays on phenomenology in it. Um, so those are two good places. Um, I'm trying to put together a larger set of an edited volume of Patushka's political works, um, but we're um, running into a few publication hurdles. But um, yeah. I hope. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I was just going to ask: Are you now? Are you now working on more Patushka? Is that your primary, uh, you know, big, big task at the moment? This this edited volume, or are you thinking of writing more books on dissidents? Um, I'm. I'm in. Between at the moment, I mean, I would like to do an edited volume of Patochka's political essays um, if we can find someone to work on it. Um, and then um, I also do work generally on dissidents as a whole. Um, and so the, um, the kinds of projects I'm looking into for my next chapter um, might include something like a phenomenology of subversion um, or um, looking at sort of cases and um, histories of that. Um, and also, I think there's just a lot of things as anytime anyone writes a book, and um, there's all this stuff you had to leave out. Um, <laughs> and so there's, I think there could have been at least four or five other great chapters of Patochka in conversation with um, X, Y, or Z. Um, and so I'm definitely working on those as a kind of article basis. I think um, Hannah Arendt's The Obvious One um, 
with totalitarianism. And then from there also Jacques Rancière, um, his work is, I think would be a great conversation partner. So, um, so th those are also in progress. So will Patuchka take, take a role in the, the work on subversion or will that be a different set of thinkers? Well, I think I came to the question through him, of course, right? Like, um, how is it that ideas um, are hidden? Um, a kind of, um, you know, in philosophy, you would call this the hermeneutics of suspicion, um, but how ideas are, are hidden and then um, nonetheless come to have sort of great influence. Um, and I also think watching what happened on January 6th in the US um, made me think a lot about subversion and um, from the negative side, I mean, not um, uh, the, the forces working against um, sort of stable government. So um, it's a strange time here in this country. So. <laughs> wow. Um, I will be sure to put the links for your book in the description below, Confronting Totalitarian Minds, yes. Jan Patochka on Politics and Dissidents by Caroline Press. And thanks once again to them for um, supplying me with a copy. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to find that via the publisher website and also via plenty of other online bookstores, whichever one is your preference, but probably try to go by the publisher. And um, yeah, that's been Brenton. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to talk.